So our text uh, this morning, Galatians 5, verses 7 to 15. Hear the word of God. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. The grass, it grows, the flowers, they fade. Uh, Sorry, the grass withers and the flower fades. But it is God's holy, inerrant word that endures forever. And may he bless it. I don't think it an unfair statement to say or to declare that Western Christianity is a hodgepodge mess. Uh, There is everything, as we like to say in our colloquialisms, there is everything in the dog's breakfast with Christianity today. Uh, I was asked this morning if I could come up with a list of uh, heresies that are taught by two prominent people that are included within the Christian world, but we would not necessarily include within the true Church of Christ. It's a mess out there. And it's fair to say that doctrine and biblical knowledge is at an all-time low. It does not uh, really boast our confidence when we're trying to evangelize. And I often hear a number of Christians say that Jehovah Witnesses know our Bible better than we do ourselves. And that they're able to argue against us uh, in that way. Some of you may be aware that Ligonier, uh, that uh, uh, parachurch ministry uh, begun by R.C. Sproul, they do a yearly survey. They call it the state of theology. Some of you I know have already looked at uh, some of their findings for the year 2022. I broke it down to the evangelical group of that survey. I didn't look at the overall stats that included everyone, but just that which came from those who would count themselves evangelicals. Uh, That's a word that has become more and more... um, shall we say, broad in its uh, coverage. But it would be those who count themselves born again in the Lord Jesus. 
62% of them believe that God accepts all worship, whether or not it's from Christians. Isn't that interesting? 62%. This one got me. 46% believe that Jesus was a good teacher, but were unsure if he was God. This is evangelicalism. 67% were unsure if the Holy Spirit was a person. The vast majority believed him to be a force. Doesn't get better. 31% believe the Holy Spirit can tell us to do things that the Bible forbids. 68% believe that all are born innocent in God's eyes. 41% believe that gender identity is a personal choice. 33% believe that the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality no longer applies. And yet, Almost 100% of them believe that the Bible is the authority to direct us in what we must believe. (laughs) It's a contradiction, isn't there? 44% believe that religious beliefs, teachings, are not about objective truth. And we wonder why Western Christianity is a hodgepodge. Christianity... The church is declining. And and I personally would suggest that it is declining in one of its highest callings. What do you think is our highest calling as believers and as the church of Christ? I would submit to you it is this. Be holy. For I, the Lord your God, am holy. That in all of who we are as God's people and in all of who we are as the church of Christ, that is something from the old to the new that comes and meets us. Holy. Be holy because the Lord our God is holy. And yet when you look at those statistics, you see that The glaring thing that stands before us is that most people don't even know who God is within evangelicalism. That they have broken, if you will, that first and highest commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. You step back and you ask, what kind of God do they have before them? Doctrine and truth is being lost. We live in a time and a generation where the church has become more concerned about affirming cultural values than they are concerned about offending a holy God. This is the church. I'm not looking at the world. We understand the world in its lost, dead state before God. In, in it, the fullness of the bondage of corruption and death and Satan. They're going to be the world. This is the church. And you step back and you ask this question, 
How have we arrived at this place? Well, again, as we're reminded from God's word, there is nothing new under the sun, even in respect of the church's decline and struggle. It is something we face in every generation. Just read the letter to the church at Thyatira. (laughs) And even there, Christ calls it his church. But boy, do I have some issues. (laughs) And they're much of the same issues that we are facing, at least within Western Christianity. How have we arrived at this place? I submit to you it is what Paul has been arguing in this letter, what God has been setting before us through uh, this determined effort by one of his chief apostles to set forth the truth and the fullness of the gospel as the foundation of our church, of his church. If you were to look at the roots of some of this hodgepodge mess that the visible church is in, you would see that the greatest issue has been the doctrines of the gospel changed to accommodate people in their sin. Not being proclaimed in its fullness to redeem them from their sins. And that's what Paul has been getting at as he has argued against those who have come in to corrupt the message of the gospel to suit the people, to gain a following, to make it less harsh, to make it more resounding and and, uh, receptive to our ears and our minds. We understand that, that, that softening the gospel does make it more appealing, but when you do that, it becomes a graceless gospel. It's no longer dealing with the two preeminent issues that need to be dealt with between us as sinners and a holy God. And that is atonement for our sins and the justification that we can't gain of our own effort before this holy God. It needs to meet us in his grace. I saved this illustration and it happened about two years ago. And I, and I felt for this person. I dislike it when I get asked this question because I know immediately that the answer isn't going to be well received. This was a man whom I was witnessing to and and he had lost his wife to death within that past year, still mourning and grieving. And he said to me, he said, well, if what you're saying is true, And do you think that my wife is in heaven? (laughs) That's a hard question, isn't it? And as I tried to skirt around dealing with someone I didn't know and tried to deal with the person that was in front of me, it ended with, well, your God is heartless, graceless. I don't want that kind of God. It's hard, isn't it? I don't say this. To make us sad, but to make us really thoughtful and sober-minded. The gospel cannot be changed to accommodate people in their sins. 
Atonement and justification is what the sinner needs. And when you have changed the gospel to accommodate people, what it does is it produces a generation of false Christians. It produces a generation of people who think they are Christian, but they have no, uh, if you will, no life. It has been generated by the Spirit, confirmed by faith in Christ. I've shared this with many of you already. But in our own setting in Canada alone, from the 2021 Statistics Canada census data that was received, and they're now going through it, it surprised me. I thought it would be a whole lot lower, but 53% of Canadians consider themselves to be Christian. 53%. But of that 53%, Less than 10% go to church on any kind of regular basis. 5% of Canadians don't go to church. I mean, go to church. 95% of Canadians do not go to any church at all. Isn't that astounding? We've got a mission field. But we're not going to reach them with a gospel that does not have the grace of atonement and justification in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is getting at to bring you to our text. He is dealing with that kind of false Christianity that's already beginning to surge in his day. You see him there at verse 7. He says, you ran well, you began well. What is hindering or who is hindering you from obeying the church? And that's uh, where we're going to consider this thought. What marks false Christianity? We're, We're inclined to say heresy. But I think Paul exposes the marks of it more clearly in this passage as he is leading us further into this letter to understand what our life and what marks the life of those who are in Christ. And one of the first things we see here is that false Christianity is marked by a hindrance in obeying the truth. Now that's an interesting phrase, obeying the truth. As if Paul hasn't spent all this time arguing about how our obedience doesn't justify it, us before God, he now talks about being hindered from obeying the truth. It's not an oxymoron. It's not a contradiction. It's an understanding that those who are in Christ have begun a race. We start running. You ran well, he says to the Galatian churches. You started off on the right foot. And, and that idea of the Christian life being a race, we know that. It's a lifelong journey. Pilgrim's progress. I know some don't like Pilgrim's progress. I love it. <laughs> it's a testimony of John Bunyan's own journey in the grace of God. But we understand we're in a lifelong journey to glory. 
And in that journey, we're learning to live in dependence on the Lord, our God, Jesus, our Savior, the Spirit who lives within us. And that's why you see Paul using this familiar phrase, uh, talking about the Christian life as one that is lived in the Spirit. You go to the end, toward the end of this chapter, and that he That is what he says. If we live in the Spirit, let us walk in the Spirit. It's a life lived in the reality that God dwells within us, that Christ is in heaven uh, striving for us to ensure that we reach that place where he is, where the Father's love and mercy meets us every day. It's a race. And, and being a race, we, we understand doctrine is important. But it's not a race where we're, we're trying to fill our mind with truth. It's not about just having the right doctrine, which we as, as those in the Reformed doctrine tradition, we acclaim a lot of truths. Doctrine is vital and important. I'm not skipping over it. But doctrine can become its own idol, its own pursuit, without any life-changing consequences. I mean, I have to ask, why is it that our Arminian brethren, and there's a phrase you don't hear too much from a Reformed pastor, but they are brothers and sisters. Why is it that they are so much more zealous, if I can say this, than many of us in the Reformed tradition for evangelism. (laughs) No, I I can think of many of the people that I have discipled in my life, and most of them seem to have begun, because I didn't start pastoring Reformed congregations. Church planting has been my life. Most of those who came to faith came through an Arminian tradition and grew in their knowledge and understanding of God's grace. So it's not just about a race to fill our minds with truth, nor is it a race that we're just trying to be good people. It's not a race to be morally attractive. Paul spells it out here. It's a race if you will, where we are learning day unto day more and more how to obey the truth. How to obey God's word and gospel. It's one of the things that I like about our Westminster Confession of Faith when it talks about what we call the marks of a church. Is that one of the chief marks of a church is how the doctrines of the gospel are proclaimed and received. That's the first mark it lists. I know most of you from another tradition uh, would say the right preaching of the word. I think there's a, a more mature understanding that let's get to the heart of it. The doctrines of the gospel must be preached and received by us. As a church, or to say it in a very theological way, our orthodoxy must become 
orthopraxy. We must live. Well, I shouldn't say we must live. We will live what we believe. It will come out in our lives. But we must look to the truth and say, that is what I will believe and obey. Christianity is not merely a belief system or merely a moral code. It is God-given, Christ-centered gospel truth that comes to life within us because the Spirit is alive within us. And Paul asked this question, who hindered you? He's writing to the churches that had been running well. Who hindered you? That word hindered. If any of you like hockey, think of it this way. You're going down the ice with the puck on your stick and you're getting ready to shoot to try and score a goal and somebody comes out of the blue and checks you and you go flying into the board and you lose the puck. That's the inference of that word hindered. Who checked you out of the way? And it was those who were peddling a graceless gospel. He says there, this persuasion doesn't come from Christ who called you, from him who calls you. This has come from those who are trying to change the gospel, who are peddling a graceless gospel. You know, it's one of the things I have never really understood when it comes to that very liberal branded idea of Christianity. I have never understood those who desire to become a Christian minister and yet deny Christ. I don't get it. Why would you want to be a minister in a church? We have that very thing within Toronto of one who denies belief in God himself. Well, why are you pursuing this? And it is because They hate the gospel. It begins there. They hate the gospel. My friends, it does not take long to hear someone peddling a graceless gospel. They deny the necessity and sufficiency of Christ's atonement and righteousness. They deny it. And we had that incursion even within the the realm of evangelicalism when it came to wanting to be united with other faiths and that great document of 1994. Catholics and evangelicals together. And and the question became, well, what's the big deal between being justified by faith or being justified by faith alone? What is the big deal? It's a huge difference. The peddling of a gospel that is not about the sufficiency and necessity of Jesus Christ alone. It's, as Paul says in verse 9, it's that leaven in the lump issue. Bring that leaven of a compromised gospel into your midst and it's going to work its way through. 
One is a salvation based on human achievement. In, in some measure. Where the sinner is taught to rely upon their personal goodness. And, and, and this is what comes from that. Where the truth of the sinfulness of sin and its consequences are diminished. And when that happens, the work and the necessity of Christ's atonement just isn't there. It's negated. We've got a better way for you to be saved, for you to be made right with God. It's easier. And and you can see it in your own life. And when the truth comes and meets, it says that we are justified by faith alone, that there is no other way to be saved except for faith in Jesus Christ, where you see he has provided the only atonement that is able to deal with our sin and our condemnation. All God asks of us Believe in my son. Come and and repent of your sins before him. And he will open the floodgates of his mercy and wash you clean. Doesn't that excite your heart? That we can be before God without a condemnation for any of our sins. You get those who hinder obeying that truth. By saying, we've got a better way. (laughs) Wow. And the great thing about that truth is, every day, for all your life, you're living by faith in Christ. Because that same grace that has justified you is the same grace of God that is at work in you, sanctifying you, and always, every day, leading you to Christ so that you don't get caught up thinking, oh, I fell short of his glory today. I must not be a Christian. No, when you fall short of his glory today, you come in the mercies of Christ and you say, thank you, God, that I have a Savior steadfast and true, who is ever interceding for me. Thank God. You see, false Christianity doesn't hold that. They start telling you, do better, do more, do this, don't do that. Which may in themselves be true and even be from the Bible, but it's not obeying the truth in the gospel. The second thing And it leads from this, as Paul says in verses 11 and 12, is that false Christianity is very offended by the cross. Offended in the wrong way. You read verses 11 and 12, and some believe that this is Paul's most offensive and vulgar language that he's ever written. Written. He's he's really saying in verse 12 that he wishes those who are promoting a salvation through circumcision would go and make themselves eunuchs and cut themselves off completely. And you think, wow, that's pretty vulgar. But in reality, if that's how you think you're going to be saved, then you've got to go the whole way. And that's what he's saying. Paul's language there is the same as Jesus. 
In Matthew 5, 27, what did he say? If, if your eye is offending you, pluck it out. If your hand is offending you, cut it off. If your foot is offending you, cut it off. Now, do you really think he means that we should be going around and, and surgically removing our eyes and cutting off our hands and feet and becoming invalids in that way? But even perhaps a more clear instance is when he meets that rich young ruler who comes up to him and who asks him that question, good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? What a chance for the gospel to go out. But why didn't Jesus say to him, believe in me with all your heart. I will save you from your sins if you just understand that I have come to be your deliverer. Why didn't he say that to him? It's because this man's heart wasn't even close to be ready for the gospel. It was clinging to self-righteousness. And Jesus took him to that limit. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. But if you want to do a good thing, that will show that you're, you're understanding and walking with God. Go and sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor. And you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Cut off your idol. And then you'll understand why you need And that's what Paul is saying here. The cross is offensive to us. That's what that very word means when it says there, offensive. The offense of the cross. Scandalin, scandalous. But it is offensive. Because it was there at the cross of Jesus that God's wrath and justice for your sinfulness had to be met with the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. One had to suffer in your place who was without sin so that God's justice could be consumed in its entirety that stood against you. And in that light, as we've already heard from Galatians 3.10, Christ had to become a curse for us. God did not spare his son an ounce of his wrath, but in love for you, he delivered Jesus up unto death so that you could freely receive God's forgiveness and be given the gift of eternal life. Amazing grace. That's the sound that ought to be sweet to our ears. But it's offensive to people. This idea of substitutionary atonement. This idea that God's wrath needs to be satisfied by another for me to be saved. I'm not a bad person. And that comes from the lips of those who have no idea of God's holiness and man's sinfulness. My friends, false Christianity is offended by that message of the gospel. 
they come out with all of these accusations that those who would hold such, you're intolerant of people, you're radical fundamentalists who can't accept people as God created them, your Christianity is unloving toward good people. And what lies behind that is that trust in their own view of God and their own efforts of striving to be right with God, their own determination of what is and isn't sin in their own view of death. All that stand in contrariness to the truth. False Christianity is filled with that. And the last mark that is presented here, the hindering of obeying the truth, being offended by the cross, is serving the flesh. And I'm only touching on this briefly because it becomes the setup for the next passage about walking in the spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh. False Christianity is not concerned about people living out their sin. They're quite happy to let you walk in sin. They're quite happy for you to indulge your flesh. We have a law in Christ. You see it there in verse 13. Our liberty in Christ, our freedom from the bondage of sin, our freedom from the penalty of death, our freedom to live as God's holy people, granted and given to us in the grace of Christ, is never to be an opportunity for the flesh. And what that means is there is no way that you can justify willingly doing something sinful with the knowledge that, hey, it's all right, I'm saved. God, you're going to forgive me, so I'm going to go ahead and do this. Uh, Just uh, please forgive me for it in advance. And you think, what kind of Christian does that? Well, they do. We do. We sin willfully. And a willful sin is a sin where we are presuming mercy to indulge the flesh. And it happens. It happens when we lie. It happens when we engage in immoral things on the internet. It happens when we gossip and slander someone. It happens. We're not here serving the flesh. Now, false Christianity would tell you, don't worry about that. And they do. Don't worry about your sexual immorality. Jesus has it covered. I'm being very blunt with it. But they, they have their way of presenting it. No. We don't serve the flesh. We don't serve that corruption of our heart. No. We've got a higher service. And that is in obedience to God's love, a law. We are learning to love. That's the higher service. False Christianity will use many things to justify sinful behavior. True Christianity 
sees, what we've been redeemed from, and what we've been redeemed unto in the Lord Jesus. So the question comes to each one of us as we hear these things. Where am I? Where are you in the spectrum of Christianity and the Church of Christ? Are you one who has laid the hope of your salvation in Christ alone? And you are walking by faith. Oh, my dear friends, believe in him. Don't think that a casual acceptance of who Jesus is is what this is all about. This is my life is now in him. Are you content to walk in your sins? Come to Christ. He is the faithful deliverer and God's true redeemer from all our sins.